This message was recorded at a Christ Central training day, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Uh, let's just pray, shall we? And let's ask God to speak to us and encourage us, give us wisdom and, uh, and grace. Father, we just thank you for the friendship uh, that we do enjoy, and we thank you for the fellowship we have with you. And uh, we just ask you to speak uh, to us through this day. Would you challenge us? Would you correct our thinking? Would you encourage us in what we are doing? Uh, Father, we want to uh, be in the world, but not of it. And so we ask for your grace and your help. We pray, help us to understand your word better, uh, that we would... Uh, not just be carried along uh, by circumstances, but we would make positive choices to change circumstances. So we ask you for your leading, uh, your energy, your strength, your help in thinking clearly, we pray today. Amen. Just check I've got my water. I must apologise also publicly to David for worrying him. Uh, I took took a couple of days off uh, at the beginning of the week uh, to visit my parents, and so I went up and stayed with them. Uh, David phoned the the, the coin on Tuesday to to find out if I was okay for Thursday, and he was told, oh, he's on holiday. Uh, uh, But it was was fine. (laughs) Okay. So uh, I've written this paper and it's on the COIN website. So if you went to the COIN church, uh, COIN.org, and uh, typed in politics under the search engine, then you'd come up with this, um, with this paper. But I'll read most of it. I'll digress at points. And uh, if I say anything you, you don't understand, please feel very free just to, to ask. I didn't get that. Uh, that's absolutely fine. So the paper is called Christians and Politics, Subservient or Subversive. In polite English society, the two subjects never to be discussed at the dinner table are religion and politics. Commenting in 2005, Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs wrote in the Times, religion becomes political at its peril and ours. Similarly, Pope John Paul II untiringly stated that priests should steer clear of politics. However, the relationship between these two spheres, that is religion and politics, uh, for Christians is too important to be sidelined or ignored for the sake of avoiding controversy. Tom Wright suggests that for many Christians, the subject is treated as a footnote to more important things, and aside almost an irrelevance in a modern democracy where Christians are quite happy with things as they are and are free to preach the gospel and save souls. Likewise, James Skillen writes of a large number of Christians who simply ignore or remain apathetic about government and politics, treating that realm as inconsequential for their Christian witness. I'll pause at that point. I think that we have the privilege, in a sense, of ignoring government and politics because we live in such a stable Uh, democracy. If you're in lots of other parts of the world, then you simply can't afford to ignore government and politics and you have to face up to these issues. Uh, We, in a sense, have the the, uh, freedom to to ignore it and treat it as a footnote because the world we live in is so stable. Uh, However, I think the the world, the society in which we live is changing and I'm sure you won't have missed the fact that increasingly over the last 10, 20 years, uh, Christianity has been opposed and is increasingly opposed and uh, uh, 
Christians are treated in a way that many are not, others are not treated, and even churches um, uh, in the West are, I mean, in, the, in many parts of the world, it's been like this for a long time. I work into Russia, and some of the Russian churches, they, they bought old social centers, uh, they did them up, and the authorities think, that's a nice building, we'll take that back. And, uh, but, but we don't face some of those issues. However, I suspect over the coming years, we may face some of those. We as a church used to always be able to meet in the, in the town square, and, uh, and now the council have said you can't do that anymore. Um, and uh, part of that is because obviously town squares are, are not public places anymore. They're part of a, uh, a, a um, uh, owned land by businesses, um, so it is different. So I think we can't afford to simply ignore uh, the subject of government. We must have a clear and biblical understanding of the ways in which Christians and Christianity relates to politics. The word politics in contemporary English is used in a variety of ways. At times it's used so broadly as to mean simply involvement in society. For for instance, a guy called uh, J. Philip Vogelman defines politics as the civil community ordering its life together on the basis of the public good the civil community ordering its life together on the basis of the public good. So politics is equated to the struggle for justice, care for the poor, those kinds of issues. And while most evangelicals would think, yep, we need to get involved in social action in one form or another, I'm not sure it's helpful to define politics quite that broadly. Perhaps at the other end uh, of the spectrum, the word politics is used to describe uh, particular activities within a very small community, especially the pursuit of power, for example, in the phrase office uh, politics. One might even add, if one was being cynical, church politics, surely not. For the purposes of this paper, I'm taking the term politics to mean governing authorities and asking how Christians should relate to state and local government. Should we withdraw like the Essenes? Should we protest with violence like the Zealots? Should we collaborate and compromise like the Sadducees? What is our duty and the limits of our duty towards government? And how are we to play our part in society while still remaining centred on God and his kingdom. As I, I think I prayed earlier, the, the challenge for us is how to be in the world and not of it. I'm not going to cover historical issues uh, and answers to this question. Uh, answers to this question are many and diverse. The focus I'm going to look at is on the biblical material and how that then might uh, relate to the current political situation in the UK. So we're going to start with the call of Abraham. Our survey of the church-state relationship, if you'll pardon the anachronism, church and state, begins with the call of Abraham, which shouldn't be understood simply as the election of an individual, but the bringing into being of a people for God. Obviously, God did not... Uh, adopt an existing nation state and then try and change its future but he promised to form a new nation state out of Abraham and his descendants and God's intention was to bless the nations through the establishing of the nation state of Israel which in its time at least supposedly uh, Israel should have been the model of righteousness and justice the way that God intended So what can we say about this people coming out of Abraham? 
Well, firstly, they were called out of their surrounding socio-economic and political environment in order to be set apart for God. So the first time we read about Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12, and that comes straight after the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. And the promises that Abraham receives and the calling that Abraham receives is actually... um, the, the calling is a criticism uh, of what's just happened at Babel. And so the people of Babel, uh, was well not called Babel at that time, the people of the earth, determine they're going to make a name for themselves and they don't want to be scattered across the whole earth. Uh, God obviously brings judgment and gives them this name Babel, which means confused, and then he does scatter them all over the face of the earth. Then, straight away, in Genesis chapter 12, we read about Abraham, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. So all the people are saying, we want to make our name great, and God takes Abraham, one man, and says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make your name great, and then through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so from the beginning, this chosen people were not to be founded on on personal gain and personal reputation, but obedience to God. Uh, A guy called Eric Vogelin says, The call of Abraham was was the first exodus, by which the other civilizations of the Near East received their stigma as an environment of lesser meaning. And so Abraham's call to to go from his country to a land that God's going to show him is an indictment against Babel, who want to make a name for themselves and yet are indifferent towards God. Then in Genesis chapter 18, in the context of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, God recalls his promise to Abraham, saying, I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Again, God's call to Abraham and his descendants is a call to be separate from their socio-political and economic setting. However, we must note that God's call to come out is so that he might establish them as a people with a, a new, a unique social framework and religious framework and so on. So it isn't simply a call out of something, but it's also a call into something new that God is going to establish, which leads us on to the second point. So firstly, Israel in Abraham, were called out of their situation in order to be founded as a new nation, as a new people with their own identity, their own land and their own socio-political structures. So initially, sorry, am I doing something with this? Is it okay? No, it's fine. Let's keep going. Uh, initially, of course, God's instruction to Abraham to go from your country uh, and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, emphasizing the separation and their calling to be pilgrims, but it wasn't always going to be, be that way. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a nation. Kings will come from you and I'll give you the land of Canaan. And so the people of God were not always going to be nomads uh, just traveling around, but were going to be established uh, in their own land with their own governing authorities, their own civil, religious and economic structures. God called the people out in order to establish a new nation state. So we need to be very careful then when we read statements in, say, for example, Hebrews 11, when it says Abraham was not looking 
uh, was sorry, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We must think. We mustn't think, oh, well, Abraham was not interested in the world. He's just looking forward to heaven. He's just looking forward to spiritual things, as if Abraham was disconnected from the world around him. He wasn't. He actually connected with them. He was called to be separate, but then also, having been established as a nation, to influence the world around him. However... Our confidence is misplaced if it is only in earthly cities. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Our confidence is misplaced if it's only in earthly cities. So let's continue to look at Israel. We've talked about Abraham. Let's talk about Israel, the nation state of God. Moving through biblical history, we come to the Exodus where Israel finds itself in slavery to the imperial state of Egypt. It's worth noting at this point that Israel's being in Egypt was a result of Joseph's extraordinary journey from Canaan, culminating in him being set over all the land of Egypt. Evidently, God is not against his people holding positions of power in state government. He even sometimes works mysteriously to bring them to that position. However, of course, with that responsibility goes, uh, sorry, with that authority goes the responsibility to act uh, righteously. And obviously Joseph did that in storing up grain uh, for the nation during the years of famine. Some people, a little digression at this point, some people teach that all government is evil. And, uh, you know, when Jesus was tempted uh, in Matthew 4, we read Jesus was tempted and Satan says to him, I've got all the authority over the governments and I can give it to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Some people interpret that to, uh, to mean that Satan, in fact, a guy called Greg Boyd, I don't know if you've heard of Greg Boyd, um, he's an American pastor, I think, from Minnesota and written quite a few books. He says that Satan is the CEO of all human governments. And um, I, think, uh, I think that's quite unhelpful. What he then says is, therefore, Christians should not participate in government. They should not engage with government. They shouldn't be involved in the police. They shouldn't get involved in the army and so on. And um, now, without responding to all of his points, uh, I think the first point I would make is uh, the Bible also says that Satan is a liar. So just because Satan says this is true of me uh, doesn't mean it is true. Um, But uh, clearly, as we read through the Bible, there are Christians engaging in politics and and getting involved in government and in rule. God brings them to ruling positions. And so government in and of itself is not intrinsically evil. As I say, Joseph was brought to, uh, to a position of power. Then we continue looking at the Exodus. And uh, in the context of our relationship to government, the the book of Exodus begins with uh, the reference to two midwives, Shiprah and Puah, who it says feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. As Phyllis Tribble notes, these two female slaves are the first to oppose the pharaoh. They thwart the will of the oppressor. And here is perhaps the first biblical example of an occasion where it's right to disobey the human authorities um, when those authorities clearly contravene the will of God. 
Not only are these two midwives, these two slave midwife girls uh, mentioned in the text and named, when obviously Pharaoh is not named, uh, then God commends them. It says God dealt well with the midwives. And because they feared God, he gave them families. These two individual women are honoured for their faith and obedience and their resistance of government. And um, yet the oppression of God's people continues. Uh, God did not command or encourage a general revolt or a general protest. This is two individuals living in obedience to God, but there's no general call for a revolution, even though they continue uh, to be oppressed. And it's interesting then that this story of the Exodus is often used by liberation theologians to justify uh, withstanding authorities when actually it's God who brings about the deliverance rather than some revolt by the people. Anyway, we could talk about that a little bit later if we have time. The Exodus account of Egypt's responsibilities towards Israel serves as a paradigm for governments towards all of God's people. So the demand is from God, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me, that they may serve me and offer sacrifices to me. Uh, So as Chris Wright points out, he says, a state which denies freedom to those who wish to worship God finds itself God's enemy. But this is not simply a story about freedom for worship uh, because God's covenant with Abraham was, I will form a people for myself, a promise that obviously Israel recall as they cry out in their slavery. So, again, we see how God calls his people out of their situation, out of their socio-political setting, in order to establish them as a new nation-state. And that took place as they travelled towards the land that God had given them. Although I think you could probably argue that they remained a slave nation, a runaway slave nation, until the law was given on Mount Sinai. And it was on Mount Sinai that they received their framework, That's when they became a nation, if you like, Um, not simply when they're just running around in the desert trying to escape the Egyptians. So they get their own framework, right, these are our values, this is how our civil life is structured, this is how our religious life is structured, and so on. It's at that point that I think they became a nation, and obviously then uh, that was kind of solidified then when they moved into the land. We must recognise that although Israel had its leaders, had a government, the judges, it was above all a monarchy, or more properly, a theocracy. That the later request for a king, so that Israel was, quote, like all the other nations, 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, Israel wanted to be like all the other nations, that was a great insult to God. Israel had a king. God was their king. And That meant, uh, that determined the kind of people that the nation of Israel must be. Again, to quote Chris Wright, Israel was not just the people of God, because lots of people would claim that in one form and another, but they were specifically the people of Yahweh. And that meant a covenant commitment to a certain kind of society that reflected Yahweh's character, values, priorities and goals. So we must conclude that the duty of God's people, if not actually all of humanity, I think you can argue it for everybody, towards any government authority is that that uh, accountability is 
penultimate, never ultimate. God is the king of all the earth. And our first accountability is to him and only second to any other authorities. And it's on this point that obviously the early church then came into conflict with the authorities when they had to say Caesar is Lord and yet they say, no, I don't want to say that because I'm saying Jesus is Lord and that was an area obviously of of tension and conflict. In uh, I was in Russia earlier in the year, in southern Russia, and uh, uh, they still do national service. And one of the guys in the church uh, had gone to do his national service, and um, uh, he came into conflict with the authorities because they said, you need to say, uh, they all stand there together on a parade ground, and you have to say, my first allegiance is to the nation of Russia. And he said, I can't do that. I can't do that. My first allegiance is to God. What, what I, I was obviously really impressed. I thought, I wonder what all the other guys in the church have done over the years then. But anyway, uh, but this guy said, um, I can't do that. I, I refuse to do that. And they were, you know, the Russians can be a bit intimidating when they want to be. And they were saying, you must do that. You will go to prison if you don't do this. You must do national service. And he said, I can't do that. And uh, in the end, he drew his pastor in. And uh, in the end, the government, the local authority said, that's fine. You you don't have to. You just need to say, I will be loyal to the nation. And he said, that's fine. I'll have my nation. I'll be loyal to my nation. But my first accountability is to God. And I thought he, he made a stand. And in the end, obviously, the authorities acknowledged that, which I thought was was fantastic. So. Our accountability is primarily to God before anybody else. That accountability then even extends to governments and those in authority. Because God holds rulers accountable for their leadership. So, as we see through the Old Testament, conditions were placed upon the monarch. For example, they should know, read and obey the law. The king didn't need to be a perfect person, he didn't need to be a super Israelite, but he uh, did need to be a model Israelite of one who loved God and obeyed God. Deuteronomy 17, the king shall read the law all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law. Jeremiah 22, verses 2 to 5, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, do justice and righteousness, and if you will not obey these words... This house will become a desolation. This is not in any way to undermine the authority of governments. That's not what we're trying to do. All we're saying is that they govern under God. And that their first accountability is to God. They are stewards of his world. And so any divine right of kings, if by that we mean appointed by God... Is still, they are still subject to requirements of justice and righteousness and accountable to God. And that, I do think that requirement goes way beyond the people of Israel. Because in the first few chapters of the book of Amos, Amos goes round all the different nations around Israel and Judah and says, God has this against you, and God has this against you, and God has this against you. And God holds all these nations accountable for their behavior. Amos kind of goes in this spiral, and then he says... And Judah and Israel, God has these things against you as well, and you should know better. Uh, So, uh, our first accountability is to God. Sadly, biblical history shows us that the kings of Israel often neglected their duty 
to know and read and obey the law. And they, so they failed to lead the people in the worship and the ways of God. And therefore, as we've just read, as was promised in the law, Israel was defeated in battle. They were taken off into exile. However, it's in that context of exile and idolatry that we see some of the most remarkable stands of of faith and defiance. And that context is not dissimilar to the context of the New Testament under, under Roman rule. So let's talk about defiance. Daniel was of the royal family and nobility of Israel. And he's a a wonderful example of willing submission to human government and at the same time, faith-filled defiance of that same government when they call him to do things that God has forbidden. He's very submissive and yet he's also defiant. He says this to King Nebuchadnezzar, which are remarkable words to say of a pagan king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and you rule over them all. That's an amazing thing that Daniel says of this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. But it isn't just flattery, he's actually, I think, making a statement of faith because he honours the king and yet he's saying that God has done this. God has given you these things. God has made you the ruler. God has allowed you to rule over these people. You're the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the power, the kingdom, the might and the glory. And it's this, uh, depend, this knowledge of the s- uh, sovereignty and supremacy of God and Daniel's humble obedience upon him uh, that enables him to be then very bold before the king. So in his song of praise, after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. And sets up kings. Daniel is willing to honour and serve this human pagan king because he knows who is ultimately in control. And so he's not looking to this human king, he's looking to God. So he's happy to serve and honour and submit to this human king. As with Joseph, following the interpretation of the dream, Daniel is promoted to be ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect. Oh, excuse me. I've got a bit of a cold. Chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, and he appoints his fellow Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as his deputies. And then we have two uh, accounts of these leaders in the nation breaking the law of the land and defying the governing authorities. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to fall down and worship the image Nebuchadnezzar has made or they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. I'm sure you know the story. It's worth noting they make no effort to protest or defend themselves against this injustice. They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They then continue with one of the most profound statements of faith in the Bible. They say, our God is able to deliver us, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, 
O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. That obviously not surprisingly, uh, that provokes king, the king, who has them thrown into their fire, into the fire. God obviously vindicates their faith. He miraculously rescues them. And again, they're promoted to positions of power. But there's no protests, there's no revolting, revolts, there's no fighting. They just humbly stand firm. Then, following that, we have the well-known story of Daniel and the lion's den. Very similar uh, pattern. (coughs) King Darius is tricked into signing a law, forbidding the worship of any but himself. And inevitably, Daniel falls foul of this law by continuing to worship the Lord. But again, there's no protest from Daniel. The text simply says, knowing that the document had been signed... Daniel got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And then he's thrown into the pit with the lions. He's delivered and vindicated and his enemies destroyed. But again, no protest, no revolt. He just stands firm and obeys God. As we then move into the New Testament, we, a first glance at Jesus might suggest that he was apolitical, that he's simply wanting to establish a religious community, uh, teach morality, revive interest in spiritual matters. Jesus himself said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Such a view, however, would be rather naive overlooking the religious and political context into which Jesus came and with which he came into conflict. Given the Jewish expectation that the kingdom rule would be restored to Israel and that the Roman authorities and occupying forces would be defeated in the same way that the Greeks had been defeated by Judas Maccabeus a couple of hundred years before, Jesus' declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand cannot be seen as anything but politically provocative. Tom Wright goes so far as to suggest that the proclamation and invitation of Jesus must have looked uncommonly like the founding of a political movement. Similarly, Jesus' actions and teachings against the temple, which is obviously the centre of religious, uh, social and political life, would have inevitably caused great offence. Not just the claims that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, but also him offering forgiveness and him offering healing apart from all the temple rituals rendered them obsolete. That was provocative. So, although Jesus' intention was not to establish a political system or party, his declarations often carried double meanings, which were deliberately provocative to the religious and political leaders. It's not then surprising, uh, Tom Wright says, that he died the death of the Leste, the political insurrectionist. And although we understand with the gifts of both revelation and hindsight that the primary, person of, uh, primary purpose sorry, of Jesus' death was to pay the penalty for sins, it would at least at the time have appeared to be the penalty for confronting the authorities. And of course that was the very same penalty that John the Baptist 
had come to and, and faced because he challenged Herod. And it says of Herod, obviously, challenged him for incest with his brother's wife. And he, it says he rebuked him for all the evil things that he had done. And obviously, he died for it. As we then move into the apostolic period, we again see overt acts of defiance against the authorities. Peter and John are commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Despite being uneducated common men, they courageously respond. Whether it's right in the uh, sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Again, they understand that they and we are firstly accountable to God and only secondly to others. And therefore Peter and John defy the authorities. So, in all of these accounts, the midwives in Egypt, uh, Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Peter and John before the council, we see God's people defying the governing authorities and disobeying state law in order to obey God and do what is right. However, it is worth noting in all of these examples of defiance that they are in order to keep explicit commands of God. They disobey the authorities in order to keep explicit commands of God. Do not murder. That's with the midwives. Don't worship any other gods but me. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and so on. So the primary question for us then is not the principle of compliance or defiance, but over the application. It isn't over whether Christians are permitted to defy the governing authorities, because evidently as you read the Bible, we are permitted to defy the governing authorities. The question is over which issues we should defy. And I think we need to ask some really important questions. Is there a clear command or principle on this issue? Is this practice essential to Christianity or is it incidental? Is it an issue of style? And uh, while I'm sure that the motivation for many of the protests by Christians that we read about in the press is sincere, I think we should choose our battlegrounds much more carefully than has often been the case. And uh, in the news again recently, I'm sure you've read about this couple, the Bulls, down in Cornwall. And, uh, and I just think, I, I can't see that that's a good battleground. I think if you choose to have a bed and breakfast in your home, then you have to run it like a business. I can't open a sweet shop and say, well, it's in my home, and therefore I'm not going to serve Muslims and homosexuals. I can't choose. That can't be right. And I just think that doesn't serve Christianity very well when people choose those kinds of things as their battlegrounds. It seems to me uh, that the church in the UK is very quick to take a stand on some things, like the Da Vinci Code, and then we're very slow to take a stand, I think, on some perhaps less uh, public issues or perhaps something like poverty. You don't hear often, perhaps more recently you have, but historically Christians haven't taken much of a stand on abortion or poverty, not publicly, um, and certainly not much in the press. And then you get stuff about wearing a necklace at work and I think, oh, come on, let's pick our battlegrounds a bit more carefully. Some things are matters of style, some things are more essential. 
And um, I think a challenge that obviously is going to face us that we can talk about a bit later is marrying homosexuals and whether I think we could be forced to do that. I, can't, I know the government has said there's a clause for churches that you, you, know, you won't be forced to do this. I can't see how that can stand up uh, in the long term. Um, so we need to learn how to distinguish between essential and non-essential issues. Rather than essential, you might even say life and death issues. Those matters of principle for which we will be prepared to fight and possibly even die. Because we must be recognised that the cost of defiance may be high. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the German Confessing Church of the 1930s prove, as others have done throughout church history, dying for the faith at the hands of the authorities is by no means limited to biblical times or the patristic period. And obviously, even today, that is true of different parts of the world. It's not so much an issue for us at the moment. We're, most people, I think, are unlikely to die for their faith in the UK, but it could happen uh, in the future. So, distinguishing between essential and non-essential matters requires divine wisdom, uh, not least for those who work closely with a political party uh, when you're uh, unlikely to see eye to eye on every issue. Having said all this, although there are many instances of defiance, both biblical and historical, we must uphold the biblical teaching of willing submission to governing authorities. Despite despite contravening the law, Daniel and his companions speak very respectfully to the king. Similarly, Peter and John are respectful before the ruling council and Paul before the Jewish and Roman authorities, although Paul does claim, he says, neither against the laws of the Jews or the Romans, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offence. The Lucan presentation of Paul as an obedient Roman citizen is, of course, in line with the suggestion that he wrote acts in Paul's defence to be used in court. However, we mustn't, because of that, make light of the submission that we see in the book, not least because it is substantiated by other explicit material. And I think the clearest passage we can turn to is Romans chapter 13 and the first seven verses. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In fact, if you want to turn to it, that would be good. We can look at it together. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore... Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Pause just for a moment. Remind yourself of who Paul is talking about, the context that Paul is writing this in. He's not writing in a modern, western, safe, comfortable democracy. He's writing in a context where the the Romans, an oppressive ruler, are are in control and yet he says 
be subject to them. They've been established there by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honour, to whom honour is owed. As I say, we must note the authorities that Paul is referring to. They are not godly leaders maintaining a fair social structure based on Christian principles. Quite the opposite. They are pagan Roman rulers who are responsible for the death of Jesus and for the death of many Christians. Alongside Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, these authorities often stood in opposition to God's people and yet Paul says you're to submit to them. Not because they are perfect, because obviously he's overstating the case when he says rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, because that's clearly not always true. And even Paul himself appealed to Caesar because he was being unfairly treated. John Stott says, in depicting rulers in such a good light, he's stating the human ideal, not the hum- uh, sorry, the divine ideal, not the human reality. We are to submit to the authorities not because they are perfect, but because they are, quote, instituted by God. And therefore, to resist the authorities is to resist what God has appointed, and therefore incurring judgment. Submission is not to the person, but to the position. And that's true in marriage. That's true in church leadership, and that's true with regard to government. Submission is not to the person, but to the position. And so the verb, ipostasso, which is this verb, be subject, it denotes submission, subjection, and obedience. And um, uh, some of you, I've, I've taught some Greek, so you'll know this. Uh, the verb be subject is a, is a passive, what's called a passive voice, which means it's, it's, um, it's not something uh, that, uh, that is done to you. So we are not sub- simply subjected to the authorities, but actually it is something that we uh, do. Now it's interesting, the form, the passive form, let me give you another example. Um, I throw the ball is an active, I'm doing the throwing. The ball is being thrown, is passive. Okay? That's a passive, what's called a passive voice. Now, in Greek, you have a a third voice, uh, which is called the middle voice. And that's something that you do to yourself. The difficulty is, it it looks exactly the same as as the passive. Okay? And I think, actually, where it says, 
be subject to the governing authorities, you could quite legitimately translate that in, in what's called this middle voice, which is something that you do to yourself. So true submission, which is a, a willing submission, it's something I do, could be seen in this verse. I think it could be rendered this way. Let every person subject themselves to the authorities. It's not simply about oppression. Actually, it's about a choice that I make. I willingly place myself under the authority of those in government as a part of my obedience to God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul then goes on to say that they are a servant of God, reminding us that they come with authority as his delegates, and yet they are also accountable to God for their actions. Pilate, in his dialogue with Jesus, said, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it hadn't been given you from above. As we've already seen, God gives authority to govern, but he also holds government responsible for their actions to make sure they do what is right. We must be very careful how we apply Paul's teaching in Romans 13. And the French professor, uh, Oscar Cullman, wrote this. He said, few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one, that Christians must be subject to the authorities. Few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. He says, as soon as Christians, out of loyalty to the gospel of Jesus, offer resistance to a state's totalitarian claim, the representatives of the state or their collaborationist theological advisers are accustomed to appeal to this saying of Paul as if Christians are here commanded to endorse and therefore abet all the crimes of a totalitarian state. Submission to those over us is never blind. It is if you like, graciously critical, even subjecting ourselves to the consequences of, of withstanding the authorities. John Stott rightly says, we are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience, disobedience to God. And if the state commands what God forbids, or the state forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist and not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. So what we've said so far is that there is certainly a place for defying government. Yes, we're to submit to government, but at the same time there's certainly a legitimate place for defying government if they command something that is contrary to what God commands. But is that going far enough. Surely there are things that we should protest about. I think I'm not quite sure that goes against a command of God, but there are still things that we think, I'm not happy with this, we should take a stand against. And so we might still protest against economic policy, for example, and yet we still pay our taxes. How should we get engaged? As we said earlier, 
there are various examples of unjust treatment in the Bible, and yet very few, if any, indications of protest from the sufferers. When Daniel and his companions were faced with death, they simply stood firm. They didn't protest against the injustice or corruption. When Jesus was falsely accused and mistreated, he didn't protest. It says, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even a single charge. And the governor was greatly amazed. Isaiah prophesied that, didn't he? That like a lamb is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. So is this our example for how we should relate to government? We should be silent before government, and then government will be greatly amazed. Um, not that Christians are silent and uh, uh, just stop talking, uh, but the lack of protest. Is it true, as, as some suggest, um, and I quote, the exemplary behavior of Christians will confound the opposition? Is that enough? Good behaviour, not protesting. Is there a place for protest? Well, firstly, we need to acknowledge that the examples that we've given already are individuals defying government in order to obey God. They don't say how Christians generally should uh, respond to national policy. They talk about how do you, as an individual, handle it when you are treated badly. The second thing is, we must note, there are obviously lots of different forms of government, and the forms of government in ancient times and biblical times are very different from certainly the form of government that we have in the UK. And so our engagement with society and our engagement with government depends in part on on that form of government. Because obviously different forms of government have different levels of, if you like, individual uh, responsibility. Democracy, at least the word itself, means rule by the populace, rule by the people. That's what the word democracy means. And yet, uh, and so despite a very poor turnout, generally speaking, uh, in general and local elections, all citizens have a responsibility to participate in the process of government, not least Christians. It's interesting, the different turnout that you get in different parts of the world. So in the UK, uh, in a general election, there is generally a, a 60 to 65% turnout in an election. And obviously that reflects how happy people are with government and so on. Um, or how some people are just not at all interested. Uh, in the 2005 election, uh, it was about 61%. In the 2010 election, the general election, it was 65%. Um, uh, 65, 64. Um, and obviously the next election is going to be in 2015. You go to somewhere like Australia and Malta, and they get a 95% turnout uh, in elections. We're quite similar to the US. They get the same kind of rate as we do. But surely in a democracy we all have a duty, we all have a responsibility to engage, in, engage with government and in voting and so on. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes so far as to suggest engagement with the authorities is part of the church's mission. He says the church has the task of summoning the whole world to submit to the dominion of Jesus Christ 
And so she testifies before government to their common master and knows it is in obedience to Jesus Christ that the commission of government is properly understood. And so if we are to release uh, the, the bonds of wickedness and let the oppressed go free, and if we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and so on, then surely we are obliged to lobby government and we're obliged to advocate justice and righteousness in government policy. The following quote, which is often, often attributed to Edmund Burke, although there's no evidence of Edmund Burke ever writing it, Uh, but it's attributed to him, this is very appropriate. He said, somebody said, not him, somebody said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that rightly points out that not only do we have a responsibility to promote righteousness, but we also have a responsibility to oppose evil. And that happens by individuals (coughs) holding positions of influence, And also I would say that the church corporately should speak out on particular issues. The American senator Roy Heron says, If people of faith refuse to participate in politics, then others will make the crucial decisions. In a democracy, the people get the government they choose and the government they work for. You could say, we get the government we deserve. Government can be awful and it can be good. Often it's something of both. And it is our duty as Christians and as citizens to make it better. So the question is not then how can a Christian be in politics? The question is how can a Christian not be in politics? Now of course in the UK this involvement in politics takes part at least that takes place in part at least through the appointment of a representative whose wisdom and judgment we can trust. I just want to make a little digression at this point. It's worth noting that the British political system works on what's called a representative system. So British members of parliament are are not delegates, they are representatives. They're not delegates who are there to, to present uh, the, the majority view of their constituents. They are there to bring their own judgments according to their own conscience, even a faith-informed conscience. So uh, the British political system is what's called a representative system, not a delegate system. There are delegate systems, um, Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, they all have a delegate system. The, the MP is there to represent the majority view of his constituents, but that's not how it is in the UK. They are, we, we vote someone in because we trust that person, we think he's a good guy, I like his view, I like his conscience, and now it's, perhaps this is an ideal, but that's how it's supposed to be that we allow them to make their own decisions. So Jackie Ashley, who wrote in The Guardian, she's a journalist writing for The Guardian, she misunderstands the British political system when she says this. What it is dangerous when we demand that Catholic MPs vote for their religion, religion first and their constituents' views second. 
That's not how the British politics is supposed to work. You vote someone in and you let them vote according to their conscience. And obviously that's complicated by party lines and, and whips and so on. But this is how it's supposed to work. Not they canvass everyone and think, oh, what's the majority view? I'll present that. That's not what they're there to do. Edmund Burke did say this. Your representative owes you not just his hard work, but his judgment. And he betrays you rather than serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. Now, obviously, as I say, that's confused a bit by party politics. And uh, so we do have uh, responsibility to bear in mind the view of the party, not just the individual. I know sometimes you come to a general election. I've heard people say, oh, you're, you're just voting for the individual and not the party. And I think, surely that's naive. Uh, you, you are clearly voting for a party as well. Let's move on. At a national and local level, it is essential, I believe, that the church is not strongly aligned to a particular political party, but stands by certain values and on certain issues. Until fairly recently, this has been the case in the United States. Broadly speaking, to be a white Christian in America is to be Republican. They're not quite synonymous, Christian and Republican, uh, but there's an awful lot of overlap. According to Jim Wallace in his book, God's Politics, he says, this view has been fueled by Democrats. I like this quote. He says, they stumble over themselves to assure voters that while they may be people of faith, they won't allow their religious beliefs to affect their political views. Which just, you won't let your religious beliefs affect your political beliefs. Nearer to home, Alistair Campbell advised Tony Blair, if you remember this, to play down his faith, saying, quote, My worry is that the Tories will pick this up and, this, and say, this is you, Tony Blair, saying, to be a Christian, you've got to be Labour. And that's a bad political situation to be in. Now, I agree with Alistair Campbell, probably for different reasons. He's obviously more concerned with the Labour Party, and obviously we're more concerned for the church, but I agree with him. It isn't helpful to have a a Christian, supposedly Christian, political party for at least two ways, uh, two reasons. Firstly, I think it infers that Christians necessarily make better rulers, and I don't think that's at all proven Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you'll be a better ruler. And anyway, the the aim is not to get Christians into power. The aim is to have righteous and effective government. And there are some very good people who are not Christian. And there are some some people who are Christians who you think, I'm not sure I'd want you in politics. So just because they're Christian doesn't mean they'll be better politicians. We need to be really careful on that. And secondly, my second reason, perhaps a bigger reason, is when a church identifies with a single party, it makes it much more difficult then to oppose that party. If you say Christians must all vote for the Christian Democrat Party, for instance, to pick a name. Let's say you say we're, we're gonna, that's what Christians do. If they do something you think, I don't agree with that, it's much harder for you to challenge that. Heron is right when he says God is not on the side of any political party, but on the side of justice, compassion, truth, mercy, freedom and life. The church must stand apart from party politics 
and promote what is right, regardless of which party, if any, is in agreement. So it's important at this point to make an important distinction then. To speak of the church and the state is not the same as saying faith and politics. I believe the church should be separate from the state in order for its faith to engage in politics. And I think part of the having such a close relationship between the state uh, and the church uh, has made it more difficult for the church to withstand the authorities. I would say that's less so now, but if you went back a few hundred years, it was very difficult for the church to oppose uh, the king. Uh, it's less, less so now, and obviously even more recently, archbishops have challenged the prime minister on certain issues um, and have uh, got a, a voice in that, which is a healthy thing. So I think we need to avoid being too closely linked to a political party. In a similar vein, I think the church needs to avoid being linked not just to a, political, a particular party, but to a small number of issues rather than being engaged with the whole spread of social life. So in the US, the church is generally identified with two issues, abortion and homosexuality. And of course those issues are big issues and important issues, but there are lots of other issues with which we need to engage. And uh, I would just say, if, if you're not registered, if you go onto the Parliament website, the, the government website is a brilliant website, lots and lots of information and very, very accessible. And uh, if you go onto, I can't remember the detail, but if you type in Parliament or Government, it'll, it'll come up very close to the top of Google. And you register, and it tells you these are all the bills going through government at the time, and, uh, and this is where they're at in terms of their process, and this one didn't get through this year, and this one did. And, uh, and it's important that we're kept up to date, actually, with what is going on. I think we tend to focus on some of the things that are in the news, uh, and, uh, and yeah, actually, we ignore some of the bills. I think, actually, we should be engaging with that bill. So, lots of people would have been engaged, I guess, with the same-sex marriage bill, uh, the, the Marriage Act that, that was uh, uh, amended in, in the summer. But I don't know if you were aware of, of some of the finance bills and the debt reduction bill that was going through earlier in the year. There's a Human Trafficking Act uh, that uh, also has been going through and, uh, and some other interesting ones like uh, personal electric vehicles and, and things like that, which are always good for a read, although that didn't get through. But we need to be aware of the broad spread of issues and engage on lots of different things to do with the economy, to do with poverty, to do with human trafficking, to do with education. And as I say, the church, especially in the US, has got reduced down to a small number of issues. We mustn't be lazy saying the same things about the same few issues, but actually not neglecting those issues. We should expand our influence and tackle lots of other social concerns. In the Old Testament, the role of the prophet was not primarily in foretelling the future, but was in declaring the truth of God. And in the same way, the church is to be prophetic in speaking out for the sake of righteousness and justice and opposing evil for the good of society as a whole. And that's where government needs people of principle and vision rather than simply people who follow popular opinion. Godly ethics 
regarding justice and care for the poor may or may not be popular, but need to be pursued regardless. To be opinion rather than principle-driven is most generous. Again, Jim Wallace, who writes really well, he says, he speaks of those politicians who, quote, they walk around town with their fingers held... They walk around town with their fingers held high in the air, having just licked them to see which way the wind is blowing. He continues, you don't change a society by merely replacing one wet-fingered politician with another. You change a society by changing the wind. But how are we as the church to change the wind of society? A subversive people. Time and again, after a general election, there's a rise in optimism. Surely this will be the government that brings about significant change. Education and health are going to improve, crime will go down, the economy will thrive, poverty and homelessness and drug abuse will be reduced, and everyone will live in peace and happiness. Obviously, that doesn't last long, and within a very short time, uh, we become aware of the government's shortcoming and our hopes are dashed. And perhaps some of that disappointment is because we put too much hope in government, expecting something from government that government is simply unable to deliver. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said, our constitution was designed for a moral and religious people, and it is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Free government rests upon public and private morality. What he's saying is that government cannot produce morality. It can only safeguard those principles which are widely accepted. So the authorities can control and punish lawbreakers. They can administrate and bring order to society, but only on the basis of widely held values. And when this value foundation changes, the government cannot be expected to re-establish it. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, said, Government seems to me to be part of religion itself. Let man be good, and the government cannot be bad. To which Andrew Womack adds, this could be turned around. Let man be bad, and the government cannot be good. Modern secular authorities, certainly democracies, are are based upon widely held values. You may even argue for Christian values in order for government to be effective. So much can be achieved by education and support. And uh, We need to still remind ourselves that our confidence is not in politicians, but in the gospel, which alone can transform the heart. Just to say that's... We're not saying you can't work for change, because obviously there's lots of evidence in history where people have worked for change. Wilberforce, Shaftesbury and others. Much can be achieved through political means. It's worth noting, I think, at that point, that actually some of that, a lot of that perhaps, is uh, patiently persevering behind the scenes. The changing of a society is not usually in the short-term public process but in the gradual shift of mindset and values, which takes place by dogged perseverance out of the public arena. And I think a negative case in point would be uh, the the gay rights issue, where over the last 30 years, I think they've worked to increase the gradual acceptability of homosexuality. A lot of that work behind the scenes 
And a positive case, I think, would be somebody like Philippa, who is working behind the scenes um, with MPs and, and so on with government. For the Christian, our hope is not ultimately in political means, but in the gospel and in the church. It's by the gospel that people are cleansed, that hearts of stone replaced by hearts of flesh, and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we walk in righteousness. So governments may maintain a framework of justice and care, but they are impotent to produce just and caring people. As the Apostle Paul wrote, the letter kills, it is the spirit that gives life. In the Old Testament, the law demanded change, but it was unable to bring about that change. But under the New Covenant, we are transformed by the renewals, renewal of our minds. And when that takes place uh, across society, then that is when the nation will be truly changed. And I think that's our hope not just for this nation, but for uh, areas of conflict around the world, in Kenya, in the Middle East, and so on. Bill Hybels sums this up brilliantly. He says, what government, this is from uh, Courageous Leadership, he says, what governments do is very important. Writing legislation for the good of society is a noble, worthy task. Public service is an honourable vocation. But politicians no matter how sincere their motivation, can only do so much. They can't change a human heart. They can't heal a wounded soul. They can't turn hatred into love. They can't bring about repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace. They can't get to the core problem of humanity. I believe only one power exists on this sorry planet that can do that. It's the power of the love of Jesus Christ, the love that conquers sin, wipes out shame, heals wounds, reconciles enemies, patches broken dreams, and ultimately changes the world one life at a time. And what grips my heart every day is the knowledge that the radical message of that transforming love has been given to the church. What a great statement that is. And that shows how our theology very much impacts our view of social engagement, especially, I would say, your eschatology. So if your eschatology means you have a very negative view of of society uh, and possibly even a negative view of the church, then uh, you will probably do very little to arrest the decline. If you, though, on the other extreme, have a very positive view of society, uh, say, for example, with a post-millennial view, or even reconstructionist, where you want to establish a sacred society, then you'll engage uh, very strongly. So your theology, especially, as I say, your eschatology, uh, affects how you engage with uh, society. Holding a high view of the church and its role in society but not expecting a sacred society, I believe, should motivate us to engage with the world without expecting too much from it. It is exactly because this world is perishing that we're hoping for its redemption. And yet, we as the church are not simply waiting for a new era, but are ushering it in as we bring the gospel and its transforming power to our communities. It is then in this sense that we're a subversive people. We are making every effort to make this society as good as it can be, and the way we do that 
is by establishing the values and power of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. We're not merely affirming the value system of the world and working to eradicate its deficiencies. We're looking to another world for our values and power. Eugene Peterson, if you want someone interesting to read who's just got a slightly different take on things, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, is just a great read. He says this, Everybody treats us so nicely. No one seems to think that we mean what we say. When we say kingdom of God, no one gets apprehensive as if we've just announced, which we thought we had, that a powerful army is poised on the border, ready to invade. He continues, though, the way this subversion manifests itself is not in open rebellion against the government, but in common Christian acts, acts of love, justice, and hope. And through these acts, the church is modelling the values and priorities of the kingdom of God and even establishing the kingdom in the world. This is not merely an alternative lifestyle, one way of living among many, This is the lifestyle of the only kingdom which will endure and which will consume all other kingdoms. And therefore, such acts are subversive and often unpopular. Tom Wright says, Those who follow Jesus are called to live by the rules of the new world rather than the old one. And the old one won't like it. Although the life of heaven is designed to bring healing to the life of the earth, the powers that presently run this world have carved it up to their own advantage and they resent any suggestion of a different way. And that's why the powers in politics, media, the professions, the business world, they are angered when Christian leaders dare say how things ought to be, even sneering at the church because then it doesn't speak out on issues of the day. Again, Eugene Peterson writes, prayer is a very subversive activity. It involves more or less open defiance against any claim by this current regime. As we pray, slowly but surely, not culture, not family, not government, not job, not even the tyrannous self can stand against the quiet power and influence of God's sovereignty. And as we pray, the kingdom of God comes. So we are as Christians instructed that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This doesn't appear to be subversive. It isn't against the authorities but it is for the kingdom of God. And as the kingdom comes and its values prevail, society is changed, almost as it were, from within. And so we may question perhaps whether it's right for the church to pray for a change of government, and I quote, and to mobilise its members in every parish to think and work and plan for a change of government as was suggested by Christians against apartheid. Such prayers are notably absent from the Bible and the church fathers. In fact, the early church prayed, when oppressed, not for a change of those in authority, who were clearly set against the Lord, but they prayed for themselves, that they may continue to speak out God's word with all boldness. However, we must be careful that we don't speak from silence, and uh, as I say, Uh, Although those prayers are not in the Bible, uh, 
we need to also take account of uh, different forms of government. The bottom line is that prayer for change is a valid expression of practical engagement because prayer brings about real change. As the church prays and preaches and brings healing, forgiveness and reconciliation and plants more churches which do the same, even in the face of opposition, society benefits. Moreover, as the church is effective in teaching and demonstrating the joys of Christian morality, and I think sometimes we should question how effective we are at that, presenting the joys of Christian morality, especially if you look at Christian marriages and Christians having abortions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Perhaps the church needs to be better at these things. As we see many lives transformed, we gain the right to promote our moral and ethical framework more widely. That takes place in part through individuals holding positions of influence as well as churches engaging with the authorities. But as Christians, we must remind ourselves, as Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Here then is our hope, that the Christian faith and the church may be revived and that through this, society will be changed and government may be enabled to uphold righteousness and justice. Our ultimate hope then is not that good politics shall prevail, but that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of... I'll start that again. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what can we conclude? Firstly, governing authorities are instituted by God, and therefore we should be subject to them as to the Lord. In fact, our willing submission is part of our witness as those who trust ultimately in God, who's the one who raises up kings and brings them down. As far as possible, we're to respect, honour and obey those set over us, praying for them regularly, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. However, if the authorities command us to act in a way which would constitute, constitute disobedience to God, we must be clear that our primary allegiance is to the Lord, and we're permitted to defy the government. But such a decision shouldn't be taken lightly, not just because of the possible legal consequences, but because to wrongly disobey the authorities incurs God's wrath. Secondly, although the separation of church and state may be desirable, the faith of the Christian must necessarily result in their engagement with society. Again, to quote Jim Wallace, one thing is clear, true faith cannot be kept inside the narrow boundaries of the sacred, as some would suggest, but is intended to be salt and light in the midst of what's called the secular world. People's values inevitably impact their actions, and so why should a people of faith be any different? Perhaps the challenge that religion and politics should not mix is better understood as a challenge to a particular set of values that's been rejected by an increasingly godless society. As the people of God, we are called to be separate in that we belong to another kingdom with its own priorities and values. This separation, at least at a corporate level, should be from any particular political party, which then releases the church from the compulsion to toe a party line and stand, then stand freely on specific issues. As citizens and Christians, 
We're to engage with our society and make every effort to introduce and maintain righteous and just legislation. We as church leaders and those in our churches must make every effort to overcome the apathy towards politics in modern Britain. We should take our duty seriously, thinking and praying through the issues surrounding local and general elections and then vote accordingly. While we're looking to another kingdom, we're also working to see its values established upon the earth. And finally, we must remind ourselves that our ultimate hope lies beyond this world. There is a sense in which we do not expect too much from government. That's not to be fatalistic. Much can be achieved through politics, but we appreciate that political systems and politicians have their limitations. In the final analysis, our hope is not in political power and structures, but in the gospel, which alone can transform individuals, communities, and even nations. And so as we play our part in our local communities... Our confidence is not in the promises of politicians, but in the promise of God, who said, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it's to that goal that we work and pray.